Information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you're listening to Episode 3 of the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Confidentiality and Privilege. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, my name is Tobias Wasser. I am a forensic psychiatrist. I am currently an assistant professor at Yale in the Department of Psychiatry with appointments in the Law and Psychiatry Division and the Public Psychiatry Division. Uh, and in my sort of day-to-day job, I am the chief medical officer of our state's forensic hospital in Connecticut. So we're going to be talking a bit about confidentiality and privilege, but to kind of back up and and look at this uh, in a broader perspective, it might help uh, those who are listening to to think about these issues as part of a discussion about privacy rights. In your opinion, is there such a thing as a, as a right to privacy and and does that exist in the United States? Yes. So everyone, you know, every U.S. citizen has a basic right to privacy, which is uh, provided for in the Constitution. This right to privacy can be traced to several different parts of the U.S. Constitution, and all of them are found in the amendments. Interestingly, the original articles of the Constitution do not include an express right to privacy. The two amendments that most closely resemble privacy rights are the Fourth and the Fourteenth. The Fourth Amendment protects citizens against unreasonable search and seizure, while the 14th Amendment states that the United States or any state within the U.S. shall not deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. So you might wonder, what do privacy rights have to do with health care? Although it's not an absolute right to privacy, there are allowable legal ways in which the intrusions into privacy usually have to do with you know, concerns about safety and other things, but on the whole, every citizen is provided a, a right to privacy. You know, the Hippocratic Oath mentions privacy between a physician and patient, and it was written more than 2,000 years ago. One English translation reads, What I may see or hear in the course of the treatment, or even outside of the treatment, in regard to the life of men, which on no account one must spread abroad, I will keep to myself holding such things shameful to be spoken about. Anyway, you were talking about sharing information between patients and the modern healthcare system. Well, so healthcare in particular is something where privacy rights are considered particularly important because any information about one's personal health is deemed to be something which would be considered private. If the individual is allowing that information to be shared with a healthcare provider, one's right to privacy would dictate the sharing of that information should be as limited as possible to only those individuals who need it the information to properly care for an individual and diagnose or treat the condition for which they're seeking treatment or evaluation. Anyone who's been to a healthcare provider in the past couple of decades or been to the hospital has heard the term HIPAA. Now, my understanding is that that is one of the laws at the federal level that establishes privacy rights but it may not be the only law. Is that correct? Correct. HIPAA stands for the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. Uh, And it it primarily dictates the circumstances under which sharing of healthcare information is appropriate and allowable. It talks a lot about something called PHI, which is the acronym for Protected Health Information. That is defined as any information which could readily identify the individual. So things such as their name, 
their date of birth, their address, their social security number. These are all forms of PHI. And HIPAA tells us the circumstances under which you can and cannot share PHI about an individual and the ways in which it is legally allowable to share their healthcare information, for example, by obtaining a release of information. But there are other healthcare laws to get back to your original question. So every state also has healthcare laws. Uh, and while HIPAA is the federal legislation that typically uh, dictates confidentiality rules about healthcare, every state also has their own uh, confidentiality laws uh, and that influence the way in which healthcare is delivered. And sometimes those things are in, are in sync with one another, HIPAA and state laws, but other times they're not. And in those cases, you have to determine whether you're going to be following the state law or HIPAA. I see. And, and usually the mechanism by which you determine whether what you're going to follow is whichever legal, you know, whether HIPAA or state law, whichever one gives the patient the greatest amount of privacy and the greatest amount of autonomy to make the decisions about how their information is shared, that's going to be the prevailing law that you will follow. So coming to the specific issue of, of confidentiality, one term I've heard is patient-physician or physician-patient confidentiality. Could you explain that for us? Yes. Yeah, so confidentiality is a, it's both a legal term and an ethical duty on the part of a physician to keep the information that a patient provides to you as a physician private. So again, it relates back to this right to privacy. And the idea is that any information that is shared with you as a physician, it's your obligation, both legally and ethically, to keep that information private and to only share it with those individuals that absolutely need the information. And that before you disclose that information, in many circumstances, you need the express written consent of the patient or their assigned substitute decision maker, if the patient cannot make decisions on their own, uh, to expressly agree to the sharing of that information before you share it. That all relates back to the ethical principle of autonomy, which is allowing individuals to make decisions for themselves and not for physicians to make decisions on behalf of the patient. You know, I've also heard the term therapist-client confidentiality is that the same thing as patient-physician confidentiality? It's a, it's a very similar term, but it applies more broadly. So as we all know, as psychiatrists or psychiatrists in training, that it's not merely physicians or psychiatrists who are providing psychotherapy, that in today's world, psychotherapy is frequently provided by psychologists, by licensed clinical social workers, by licensed professional counselors, marriage and family therapists. So all sorts of different individuals are providing psychotherapy or forms of psychotherapy. And the term therapist-client confidentiality refers to all other forms of healthcare or mental health care providers who might provide psychotherapy to include them under that umbrella term to also indicate that they too have an ethical and legal obligation to keep confidential information which is provided to them. So for a psychiatrist, let's say their medical board or state laws establish patient-physician confidentiality, and then there's another set of laws or regulations in the same jurisdiction that establish therapist-client confidentiality, how are they supposed to resolve these two things? Complicated question. If there's any question, whichever statute provides the patient the greatest amount of protections privacy and autonomy to make their own decisions is the statute that you should follow. And as long as you do that, you will be 
safest and, and most protected from a legal perspective in the carrier providing. So that's a little bit like your uh, answer with the federal versus state issue. The same thing would apply with the therapist versus physician issue. Whichever one protects the patient's rights the most is the one that the clinician should follow. Yes. And of course, uh, as with anything, if anyone has a question, it's probably better to seek counsel than to just trust a podcast. I would agree. So I think at all times, particularly for trainees, I would first start by asking your supervisor. Uh, I would never go through something like this alone. I would make sure that you, you, no one should worry alone. And as a trainee, it's the reason that you have a supervisor is that you have someone who's trusted that you can go to and get their advice and their counsel. And ultimately, after speaking to them, they may advise you to legal counsel or you may not feel that the information that was provided to you was sufficient. And I think you should always seek out the legal counsel for the institution in which you're working or training and get their guidance because you're not an expert in the law. You're a training expert in psychiatry. And so the reason we have legal experts is to help guide us in these situations. Now, coming back to more technical parts of confidentiality, you described that it is an obligation that clinicians must uphold at all times and that sometimes if someone needs to speak with third parties that, you know, there may be a, a release of information that's signed by the patient uh, or some sort of express permission given by the patient. There are some circumstances, from my understanding, where that confidentiality circle is actually accepted and we don't need the patient's permission to discuss certain kinds of information. It's understood that there are certain types of individuals that are inside that circle of confidentiality. Could you talk a little bit about those individuals who are allowed to see the patient's health information or those individuals who the clinician can talk to about the patient? So there are certain individuals who, as you put it, inside the circle of confidentiality, which means that you are permitted to share a patient's protected health information with those individuals without express written consent. So for example, that would be the patient themselves. It would be you as a physician. It would be any individuals who are directly involved in that patient's care. So if you're part of a, a multidisciplinary care team, you know, involving perhaps a social worker, a psychologist, nurses, mental health workers, all of those individuals directly involved in as care are part of the inner circle and you do not need a separate release of information for each of those individuals because you're sharing information with them for the purposes of treatment. So Dr. Wasser, one of the groups of, of people that you mentioned is actually the patient themselves. And, and that may seem obvious, but to some mental health clinicians, that may seem counterproductive. Are you saying that patients are entitled to their own health information? Yes, that's actually exactly what I'm saying is that Part of what HIPAA says very explicitly is that the patient is the owner of their health information. The healthcare institution or healthcare entity essentially may physically hold the information, but the information belongs to the patient. It doesn't belong to the physician. It doesn't belong to the hospital. And so part of what HIPAA, part of its intention was to say very explicitly that the patient themselves has a right to their information and that the circumstances under which we forbid them or do not permit them access to their own records should be very, very limited. And so they, they have created a few exceptions to when you might provide someone's protected health information to them. 
But on the whole, you are generally, in almost all circumstances, obligated to share that information with the patient. If there are people that are inside this circle that implicitly can access the patient's health information, like, uh, let's say, the front desk clerk or or the nurse in a clinic, uh, they can obviously read the chart or parts of the chart. That essentially uh, implies that there are people that are outside the circle. Could you talk to us about those people that may think they're inside the circle, but in fact, we do need permission from the patient to share their information. That's correct. There are obviously people who are outside of the circle of confidentiality, and they are the individuals who do require an express written release of information to be signed before you can share information with them. And even then, the release has to say very explicitly what types of information you can share with that individual, and also has to say for what duration of time or during what period of time can you share that information with the individual? Some of the individuals who might be involved in this, for example, are family members of the patient. So this can sometimes be a little complicated because family members are often involved in care. And uh, there's been some debate back and forth about whether or not family members should or should not require an express release of information before you share with them. But at this time, unless it's an absolute emergency, Before you disclose any information about a patient to a family member, I would advise that you obtain a release of information from the patient. As a provider, you are always able to receive information from a family member without a release. So you you don't need a release just to speak to them or, or pick up the phone and hear what they have to say. But before you share information about your patient with them, I would suggest that you be careful enough and and get a release. Um, Other entities that often will request information about a patient and may try to persuade you that they are part of the circle are individuals such as attorneys or the police. Um, And again, I would caution that those individuals are explicitly outside of the circle of confidentiality. And before sharing any information with a legal body or an attorney or a police officer, you want to make sure that you have uh, obtained a written release of information from the patient, and unless it's you've received a court order or a subpoena of certain types from a court, then you may be obligated, even without the release of information, to provide that information to the court. But in that circumstances, I would again advise that you seek legal counsel from your institution because it may be very hard to tell on your own whether you're obligated or not to share the information, and you want to be very judicious and careful about not sharing if in fact you do not have to share the information. That's a that's a very interesting group of people you've mentioned, the police, law enforcement, and the court system. What it sounds like you're saying is that, let's say someone is working in the emergency room or some sort of crisis unit, and a patient is brought in by law enforcement. Some of those law enforcement officers are specially trained to deal with mental health crises, and they may be genuinely motivated to be as helpful as they can to the patient, and they're often very curious. But that is not a substitute for actually getting the patient's permission to talk with law enforcement about uh, what's really going on. Correct. And I think what you're describing is a very optimistic scenario in which you know a police officer may have special training and, and may 
have the best of intentions for wanting to seek out the information, which is wonderful. Sometimes other situations arise with police, particularly in emergency room settings where they may have less altruistic motives, but still believe that they are entitled to certain pieces of information, you know, diagnostic information, treatment information, or information about when the patient will be discharged from the emergency room. And because of their stature as a police officer and sort of the authority that they hold and with which they carry themselves and they speak to you, they may try to influence you to believe that you are obligated to share that information with them. And again, I would caution that any individual, particularly a a resident, should be very careful about not being overly influenced by that authority. And I would make sure that you seek appropriate supervision before you share that information because even though they may try to convince you that they are entitled to the information, in most situations, they are not truly entitled to the information. So, for example, they're not typically entitled to know when someone's going to be discharged from the emergency room unless the person's on a police hold. And in those cases, usually, if someone's on a police hold, an officer will stay with them either in the emergency room or directly outside waiting for them to be discharged. Unless that's the case, you're not allowed to inform the police when the person's going to be discharged from the emergency room unless that patient signs a release of information allowing you to disclose that information to them. What are your thoughts about attorneys? Sometimes clinicians working on inpatient units or maybe even in the clinic will get a phone call from an attorney who essentially says, you need to start telling me uh, all the details about this patient because I'm a lawyer. So again, this is when I would exercise, I would advise exercising caution because one never knows how the information provided to an attorney will ultimately be used. And even if it is presented to you that they're, you know, an attorney representing your patient, that they're doing it in their best interest, uh, and they intend to use it for some benevolent purpose. You, once you disclose the information, you no longer control the information. The information is out there for that individual to use for whatever purpose they, they deem appropriate. And I would always advise in those situations that before discussing anything with an attorney, that first the individual obtain, again, a release of information from the patient for their attorney, and they discuss very explicitly with the patient what the patient themselves would like shared with the attorney and what they would not like shared with the attorney. Uh, And I think in that way, you are careful both be respectful of the patient and make sure that their wishes are being considered. And also legally, you are adhering to your responsibilities to make sure you're only sharing that information which the patient has explicitly allowed you to share. I think another thing that uh, clinicians may or may not be aware of when they're getting these phone calls is that if someone identifies themselves as an attorney, that may not necessarily be the patient's attorney. It may actually be the attorney on the opposite side of an adversarial situation, like in a possible criminal prosecution or, or even in like a child custody or divorce case. It's a great point. Are there any other limits to confidentiality that we need to know about besides the ones we've talked about so far? There are other limits to confidentiality. One which comes up frequently in medical settings has to do with other individuals involved in the care of the patient for whom you do not need a release of information to share the information. Care coordinators, for example, or discharge planners, things of that nature who residents may be more familiar with from their time on the medical wards uh, when trying to plan for someone's discharge to a skilled nursing facility or to a physical therapy rehabilitation center or something of that nature. Any individual involved in care coordination does not require uh, express written 
consent to share the information with them. Another common exception to confidentiality are in emergency settings. So if someone comes in and is unconscious and unable to share information, or they're seen in an emergency room setting and they're unable or unwilling to share information, almost in every state there are exceptions for emergency situations, which allow you to share the patient's information without their consent. I like your example of the of the patient with... Um with coma, you know, if they're, if they're uptunded and they can't speak, uh, what about patients who are so grossly psychotic that they lack the capacity to give consent, but uh, the clinician thinks that their life is in danger from the severity of their mental illness? In those scenarios, particularly if someone's being seen in an emergency room or an urgent care setting, typically that would also qualify as a legally allowable exception to confidentiality. In an ideal scenario, you would identify a substitute decision maker, whether that's a family member or a conservator or a guardian has been appointed for the individual to make the decision on their behalf. But oftentimes in emergency room settings, you don't have access to that information. You just have a very ill individual in front of you who's so gravely disabled that they cannot make this information or these decisions on their own. And as you put it, that their life would be in danger without the ability to disclose certain pieces of information in order to arrange care or to uh, accurately come to a diagnosis or an understanding about the circumstances that led them to present to the emergency room. I think in those circumstances, you would be legally allowed to share information about them without their consent. But I would also caution that you would probably want to consider uh, an element of HIPAA, which is called the minimum necessary standard. That essentially dictates that you only want to disclose the minimum amount of information which is necessary to accomplish the task you're seeking to accomplish. So if you must disclose information, only disclose the least amount necessary to get the job done. So another legally allowable exception to confidentiality are third-party payers, so insurance companies, uh, in which you can share information with them about the patient for the purposes of payment without getting a release. And then there are several safety-related exceptions to confidentiality that are common in almost all states. So these have to do with situations in which you believe the person is an imminent risk of harm to themselves or others, or they may be, again, so gravely disabled as their safety or their lives would be in jeopardy if you allow them to go on without treatment. And those are often circumstances in which you can disclose information with an emergency room, for example, or an ambulance or the police in an effort to get that person the care they need. Other common exceptions are for things such as child abuse. Most healthcare providers in most states are considered mandated reporters. And so in those circumstances, if you learn that a child has been abused or neglected during the course of your care of an individual, you are obligated to disclose that to the local Child Protective Services Agency. Similar exceptions exist under most state statutes for things like elder abuse, certain infectious disease states sometimes for things like sex trafficking, gun violence, domestic violence in some but not all states. So there there are several instances like that. And again, for each state, one needs to familiarize themselves with the situations in which you are a mandated reporter in your particular state to make sure that you're adhering to all of your obligations as a healthcare provider. Back in the days of paper uh, progress notes, that's that's <laughs> that might date me, but that's when I went to did my residency training. 
my psychotherapy supervisors in residency made a big deal out of differentiating progress notes that would go in the patient's official record and psychotherapy process notes. Do you see a distinction between these two forms of documentation? So legally, there is a distinction because the progress note is considered a part of the electronic medical or a medical record that may or may not be electronic, whereas a psychotherapy process note is considered to be separate. It's considered to not be part of the individual's medical record if it's something that's used solely by the psychotherapist for the purposes of their formulating the case of the patient or, you know, sort of notes for themselves about future care, and they may not be entered in the medical record. They may be kept separately. Process notes are not necessarily considered the patient's property. They're more often considered belonging to the psychotherapist because they're used for a different purpose. It's not for documenting the care provided it's for that individual to be able to think more thoroughly and thoughtfully about the care that they're providing. You've described them, if I, if I remember the word you used correctly, they're less discoverable. That kind of implies that it's not like putting your notes in some sort of like bank vault. There may be a chance that they are, that you're compelled to share them, but it's just harder to get at them. Exactly. So you're correct. So they're not, it's not an absolute. And so if you were to receive a court order, for example, ordering you to disclose that information, you would still be obligated to do so. Uh, it might not be as easily identifiable as, as something that's in the medical record. So someone would have to know that the process notes exist and they'd have to request them or they, an attorney might have to guess that they might exist and, and include them and hope to find them. But if they're listed as something as part of a court order for you to disclose, you are obligated to do so. Dr. Wasser, is there anything else we need to talk about with regards to confidentiality? The only other thing I will mention that we skipped over earlier as an exception to confidentiality, I alluded to, but should say more explicitly, is around uh, one's duty to third parties, which I know will be talked about more explicitly in a, a separate podcast. But just to mention that these two are these two uh, ideas are clearly linked, and that in many states, as a healthcare provider, as a psychiatrist, you are obligated. You may be permitted or obligated to disclose information about a patient when they have indicated to you that they intend to inflict harm on a third party. And in those situations, you have an obligate, you often have an obligation to either you know, warn or hospitalize to do something to protect that third party individual who's now been identified that uh, as potentially at risk of harm by your patient. So people make a distinction between confidentiality, which is an obligation that clinicians must uphold all the time, and testimonial privilege. Could you tell us the difference between confidentiality and, and testimonial privilege? As we talked about earlier, confidentiality is an ethical and legal duty for the physician or psychiatrist to keep all information private that is given to them by the patient. Testimonial privilege is actually an exception to a common rule in, in the courtroom setting. So in the courtroom setting, typically there are two sides to the legal dispute. And there's some person who's tasked with coming to a decision to trying to figure out what the truth is. Usually that's a judge or a jury. And to try to help them come to a decision about what the truth is, the court wants to include all possible information because that will enable them to have the best chance of figuring out what really happened. So in most cases, if you come into court, you are required to tell the court anything you saw or heard or did. There are, however, 
there are some exceptions to this, and the exception is typically known as testimonial privilege, which means that some information is considered privileged or protected because the court and the legal system recognizes the value of certain special relationships, that in society, we want to value those special relationships, and we don't want to force people to come into a courtroom and disclose the information that was shared because it might harm some element of that relationship. And because in society, we value those particular relationships so highly, we've given them a special class or a special status that allows them an exception. And it says, if you come into court, you have an exception to the common rule, and you do not have to testify or tell us what you saw or heard or did about that particular individual. Some examples of, of testimonial privilege that people may have heard of before are things like attorney-client privilege. So anything that a client says to their attorney is quote-unquote privileged, which means that the attorney doesn't have to say anything about it in court, and actually they cannot be obligated to do so. The same exists for something called spousal privilege, which exists between two spouses, or clergy privilege between someone and their religious individual with whom they're seeking counsel. And in most states, there exists some kind of doctor-patient privilege or therapist-client privilege, which, again, protects or does not obligate the physician or the therapist to disclose information in court that they know about their patient. So who has the power in waiving testimonial privilege? Is it the patient uh, or the doctor? So the privilege belongs to the patient. So you as the doctor cannot decide to waive the privilege, meaning you can't decide that in this particular circumstance, you just don't want to you know, uphold it. So for example, if you're engaging in psychotherapy with a patient and during the course of your therapy, they disclosed to you that they were involved in a very serious crime. Perhaps they committed a homicide or something of that nature. You may be called to court and you cannot decide that of your own volition because you feel so guilty about this that you're going to waive the privilege and tell the court what the patient told you. Only the patient can waive the privilege. So if the patient says you may disclose what you talked to them about, then you may talk about it, but it is only then that you're able to do so. Now, can the patient pick and choose what the doctor reveals, or is it that once they waive the privilege, then you can be asked any questions? Once it's waived, it's waived. I don't think you can pick and choose what's disclosed the way you could in a release of information form, for example, around healthcare information. And my, my understanding is the same as yours, that you know, once the patient waives the privilege, whatever they've told you is now you know, able to be discussed in, in the courtroom. So let's say I get a subpoena uh, from a court as a treating clinician. What do I have to do about something like that? So the first thing you should do is contact legal representation. Or perhaps as a trainee, the first thing you should do is speak to your supervisor. Then the second thing you should do is speak to a legal representative. So again, for your hospital or your institution, you should seek out legal counsel. You should bring them a copy of the subpoena and they will help provide you guidance about your obligation in that scenario. Some subpoenas have to be adhered to, and as a result of them, you have to present in court. Some subpoenas you do not have to, and it depends, and, and it's very specific legal jargon that determines that, and so that's why it's always important to involve an attorney in that decision. I would never advise disregarding a subpoena. Just because you have an obligation of confidentiality to your patient does not mean you can just ignore the subpoena. You have to get appropriate legal counsel on how to respond 
And even if ultimately you are asked to go to court, if the court orders you to answer certain information, even despite the rules of confidentiality, you are obligated to answer those questions. But I think it's also advisable to inform the patient that you've received a subpoena and that you're being asked to present in court because as a therapeutic issue, you want them to know. You don't want it to be a surprise when you show up in court to talk to them. But then when you go to court, you are ultimately subject to the rules of the court. And if the court obligates you to share certain pieces of information, you can potentially be held in contempt of court if you do not adhere with those orders. So it sounds like even if I'm no longer taking care of that patient, if I was served a subpoena, the the wrong answer is to just shred it and forget about it. That would certainly be the wrong answer. That could get you in some serious hot water, depending on how serious of a legal situation it is. If I do have to go to court, and whether it's because the patient has asked me to come and has waived their privilege or whether I've been subpoenaed, am I appearing in court to answer all the questions, and does that make me an expert witness? So it does not. Even though you are going to court, you are going to court most likely or almost definitely as what we would call a fact witness. You are going to the court to provide them information about the factual history of your treatment of the patient. And again, this is all assuming that you sought legal counsel and the legal counsel has advised you that you must present to court and you must answer the questions of the court. If that is the case, you are there to provide an account of the history of your treatment of that patient. You are not there as an expert witness. An expert witness is given additional leeway in the legal system to provide opinions about their the prognosis of the patient, the risk of the patient, perhaps whether they understood what they were doing at a certain time, but you're not there to answer those questions. And if you are pressured to try to answer those questions, you are well within your right to indicate that although you can talk knowingly about your history of working with the patient, you are not an expert witness and you have not performed that type of a forensic evaluation of the patient and you are unable to provide answers to those types of questions. So it sounds like you can show up, you can talk about what you saw, uh, what symptoms you elicited, the diagnosis you've made, but it sounds like you're saying that the clinician who appears as a treating clinician in the courtroom should stick pretty close to the medical record. Correct. All right. Well, Dr. Wasser, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to speak with us uh, about confidentiality and privilege. I appreciate it. No problem. It was my pleasure to do this, and I hope it's helpful.